This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day, Diplomates fans. Welcome back. Uh, huge week, month in foreign policy. So much going on. So I thought who better to get on the program than Hagar Shamali from the Oh My World Show. Uh, so much we discuss. We talk about the Brazilian insurrection and why this matters to the world. We talk about tanks heading to Ukraine and uh, about Putin's energy blackmail failing. We talk about the latest in the Iran protests, the fact that it's still going on and what's happening there with these shocking rapes and tortures. And Gag is a really great insight into what the United States should be doing based on their experience in the White House. Talk about a strike in Iran on a drone factory by probably the Israelis. Talk about Chinese COVID stats, their birth rates, their fallen population, and also their attempts to reset global relations at Davos. And, we also dig right into Biden's files, US domestic policy, and basically, you know, what this means uh, for the future of Trump investigations. We talk about a lot, actually, and Hagar is absolutely brilliant. Like, gives a really great insight in terms of uh, how you actually handle classified material, which I did not know much about, so I learned a lot as well. And of course, we've got some, uh, <laughs> we talk about Boris Johnson, Putin, and George Santos. If you don't know who he is, you will shortly. So, so much. I really hope you enjoy it. If you're new to the show, please rate and review us. If you have been listening to the show and you have not rated and reviewed us, uh, please do that. It really does help. Um, I know I ask all the time. It really helps a lot. It helps push us up the uh, chart. So, show's doing well, and I really appreciate everyone who's been contributing. Uh, apart from all that, Jima, enjoy the show. Hagar Shamali, welcome back to Diplomates. Good to see you uh, in 2023. It's our first episode talking. Uh, how are Good you? Good to see you, Misha. I was going to tell you, Happy New Year. It is not too late to make New Year's predictions. And oh. uh, great to see you. Well, we're, we're almost outside the statute of limitations on uh, Happy New Year's, but you and I have not uh, seen each other, if not face to face, screen to screen. So, um, yeah, Happy New Year to you. And uh, look, so much to. Uh, unpack already uh, in 2023 since we last spoke. Um, I was sort of jotting things down by having to, you know, leave things out, frankly, about what we could talk about. But one thing that happened this year, and I thought a good place to start because, I mean, it got a lot of coverage, but it's not, frankly, got enough coverage, in my opinion, is what happened in Brazil. So last year uh, there was an election. Uh, the incumbent president, Bolsonaro, lost to uh, a former president, but the uh, newly elected president, Lula. Uh, and uh, basically, Bolsonaro was doing what pretty Trumpy type stuff in the lead up to the election, saying if he loses, it was going to be uh, stolen from him. He then left after the election, ironically, to Florida, where to be near uh, a certain um, former US president uh, in Mar-a-Lago there. But after revving up this uh, conspiracy theory type thing, we saw pretty much shades of the January 6th insurrection um, in Brazil with uh, protesters marching on the parliament, presidential palace, the Supreme Court. So, you know, what was your take on this? Because it's pretty shocking stuff, and I think something that really needs more discussion. Well, super shocking, but also shades of the January 6th insurrection in what happened in Brazil on January 8th, almost two years to the day. Is, is really putting it lightly. They were very inspired by what happened here on January 6th. And they were also, by the way, egged on by Trump allies and American influencers here. So to take a step back in general on the Brazil elections, first, uh, for listeners, Lula, leftist uh, Lula da Silva, won the elections in October, very narrowly against far-right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro, and he was sworn in on January 1st. And the Bolsonaro supporters stormed these palaces, as you said, these offices, on January 8th, and it was awful, right? They they destroyed equipment and and furniture and, and apparently priceless works of art, and it took a few hours for the police to get control over it, and it was eerily similar to what happened here in the United States. And this election in general a lot of it a lot of the tension around it stems from misinformation you had and and that was a key theme of these elections in the months running up to them and you had it by the way a little bit on both sides but particularly from bolsonaro's side one of the key things that he said was that 
the voting machines, because they're electronic in Brazil, that the voting machines were clearly rigged. This was before the election even happened. He kept beating this drum. Voting machines are rigged. Whatever comes out with this, um, or if I lose, it's clearly that the, the, the voting machines right. are rigged. And so his, his supporters believed that. And that carried through to this event. So after the elections in October, when Lula won, they immediately went to the military headquarters and started protesting there and demanding that the military take over. And the reason that's also very terrifying in Brazil is that they were under military dictatorship for nearly 20 years. They did that. Right, exactly. It's an important factor uh, to remember when discussing Brazilian yes. politics, right? That that was their first port of call. Completely. Right? And then when they mm. were bussed in, by the way, 4,000 of them were bussed in. Who paid for these buses? We still don't know. But when they were bussed into to Brazil's capital, Brasilia, to, to pursue these protests and in their own insurrection, they genuinely believed that they were not pursuing some kind of attack. They believed that they were there to save democracy. And that kind of brainwashing and the misinformation that they genuinely believed is really, it's terrifying on another level. And like I said, they were egged on by American influencers here. You had Steve Bannon, who's was in the cabinet with the with the US president when when it, sorry when Donald Trump was was president and he went on his podcast pushing the theory that the Brazil election was stolen um, then you had Ali Alexander who was the guy here who pushed the hashtag stop the steal movement when Trump lost he went on his social media pages to tell Brazilians to do whatever is necessary and that that misinformation and then the fact that the US is exporting far-right ideology and fighting against fair elections, this really helped fuel this. And that's what terrifies me so much. No, and I think, um, you know, just picking up your point around misinformation, the protesters were carrying signs saying, show us the source code, i.e. the source code to these uh, voting machines that were allegedly rigged. So, uh, which, again, is conspiracy theory type stuff. But the scary bit about it is, there are obviously bad faith actors, you mentioned Bannon and others, um, that are basically doing it for their own means because they've got some weird fetish around tearing down democracy and replacing it with whatever it is that they're in favour of. But uh, the scary thing is I think there are people that genuinely believe uh, these conspiracy theories. And if you genuinely believe that your country has been essentially stolen um, through a rigged election, well, then... You know, the, the response might be anything they do to be including what we saw in January 8 in Brazil, right? So, and I think in many ways, some of the people in, in January 6, um, uh, you know, in, in Washington a couple of years back. So that's a, that's a big, scary thing. Now, I just want to talk a little bit about, while we're on Brazil, Bolsonaro himself, because he's now in the US. He's becoming a bit of a lightning rod now because former, former Brazilian president, there's been this incident back in... Brazil, he's known to be close to Trump. There was a rumor he's going to go to Trump's uh, New Year's Eve party, but apparently that invitation was lost or rescinded because it was going to be too much heat. But uh, what's your um, what's your take on what's the latest around Bolsonaro's status in the United States? Well, I you know I looked this up right before we started taping, and apparently uh, he has just applied for a six month visa to stay here in the United States. Now there are there are leader there are Democrat leaders in particular who are calling on him to be kicked out of the country, and you know this is just I'm speculating a little bit, but having had some experience and watching how this works inside the United States, unless he is a criminal, a human rights abuser, a dictator, a war, you know, a warlord, unless he's had some record that is egregious with regard to rule of law. And I'm not saying that he was a good leader, as you, you and I both know where I stand on Jair Bolsonaro. Um, I was not a fan of the emu talking leader, um, uh, nor was I of his COVID views. But but uh, that said, I just I don't see grounds on which they would deny him a visa. So long as he uh, he applies for that visa in the appropriate way and the proper process, meaning he doesn't, uh, for example, he there were questions as to how he came into the country. What passport did he use? Did he come on an official passport? That would not have been allowed. Um, so things of that nature. So so long as he does it the right way, I, I personally don't see why he would be denied uh, a visa, but, but you never know. That said, 
he's uh, he's here now. He's in. Uh, he was in Miami. Apparently now he might be in Orlando. We're not sure, but he's in Florida, and uh, and I'm surprised he didn't accept the invitation to Mar-a-Lago uh, if it if it did indeed get to his hands. <laughs> well, it, it, we, we do know that uh, if not Trump, Trump's son and people around Trump were meeting with Bolsonaro's son in the lead up to January eighth, and his son is a an MP or a member of the Brazilian parliament. Um, so there is a lot of interesting and weird little synergies between this, uh, you know, this right wing, you know, proto-fascist movement existing within democracies around the world. Because I think, you know, when you look back on 2022, we looked at Brazil and said, okay, well, that's a positive um, outcome in terms of democracy. Uh, you know, one, that they had an election, that uh, the pro-democracy candidate won. Um, and in the, as a side note as well, I mean, Lula, he was formerly president, but the essentially was put through the criminal justice system mm-hmm. by the Bolsonaro machine. So they basically targeted him. He was arrested, tried, then jailed, then released uh, by the Supreme Court. He was overturned. So, it, it, you know, Brazil is right up against the edge of, uh, you know, slipping into something less than, a, you know, a democracy into some kind of anocracy. So... Uh, one to watch closely. Now, speaking of democracies and autocracies, Ukraine. Um, we've had uh, big news coming out of uh, out of the United States, out of Germany, finally around sending tanks um, into uh, Ukraine to help them support uh, in fighting in the springtime, probably more likely. Uh, but also, what's interesting um, is you know, you know perhaps we attribute this as to cl- you know, climate change or global warming, but. Uh, Putin's big bet on energy blackmail has failed, really. Uh, he, as we sit here, we're right up against February. Uh, it's been a, a milder winter than usual. And as a result, um, European countries have not used uh, their, uh, you know, their uh, stores of gas, uh, surprisingly. So Germany's gas stores are at 93%, so higher than they've ever been. Now, I kind of want your take on where you see the Ukraine situation um, in respect to U.S. support, because uh, at the end of the day, the U.S. have been pushing really hard for the Germans to release uh, the Leopard 2 tanks and allowing other countries that they export them to to export them to Ukraine. But in the end, the U.S. also is sending Abrams tanks. But, you know, where do you see the Biden administration's support for this and how do you see also uh, the new Republican House majority and, and its relationship to this cause? Well... On one hand, you have President Biden has um, has been pretty consistent on supporting Ukraine, and we keep seeing with every with every trip, right? You just saw it at the Davos meeting, um, and uh, and before that, of course, you've, you, we've seen round after round of U.S. military support pushed by President Biden and by Congress. When you have now the new Congress that you're talking about, the difficulty we face now, and that the Ukrainians are going to face, is that we you're they're going to face a system that was already broken that's going to be even more dysfunctional so every everything that the u.s congress now has to face and you and i are going to probably get to this later when we talk about the debt ceiling and and other issues here every responsibility that the u.s congress has whether it's passing a budget or passing appropriations from or military packages and such is going to get stuck in days, if not weeks, of arguments and negotiations and watering down uh, legislation and 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 other issues because of this the way they've now set up their the speaker who has now has become oh, practically impotent. He for Kevin McCarthy to become speaker, he had to give away an enormous amount of power. I mean, basically, it's shocking he's still there, yes. (laughs) And and he had to do it to a very small group, very small group. It was initially 21 far-right Republicans holding him back. And then even then it narrowed down to about five of them. And- That's right, five, the Matt Gates group of roughly five, basically, because he had to get to 218 and couldn't, right? There was not, how many votes in the end were there? Yeah, well, that he, you mean how many that he had to win? Yeah, no, no, no. How many uh, failed votes were there for McCarthy? Oh, yes, 15 total. 15. Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, So a lot, there are a lot of, a lot of jokes going around calling him 15 vote Kevin. And that is the, that's the (laughs) longest it has ever taken any speaker of the house. Um, And it was, 
an embarrassment, frankly, and uh, inside the United States, but around the world as well. And the, the problem with that is that, like I said, it's going to make passing any kind of legislation, any kind of routine responsibilities that Congress has, like budgets and 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 military packages, is going to make it very difficult. And so, and and by the way. A lot of analysts say that President Zelensky knew that that might happen. Not that he certainly wouldn't have expected the drama around Kevin McCarthy, but that he figured that given the House was turning Republican, when he came to visit the United States uh, right before Christmas, and he made this push for military aid, this big push, he went to visit Congress and made that impassioned plea that... In his mind, he may have known that it was going to become more difficult and so that this was his chance to really ask for the for everything. For me, when it comes to U.S. military aid, I'm really ha- I'm personally very happy that that the that the U.S. and Europe finally agreed to send tanks. I just I get frustrated by it. And I have said this since the beginning of the war. And it's my experience handling the Syria war from the White House. All the steps that the United States and others say that they will never do, they end up finally wow. doing. But you would be so much better off if you do it earlier. And my issue with the debate around the tanks, when I would hear Chancellor Schultz speak about it and others, well, mainly Chancellor Schultz, was that he was talking as though the goal with regard to military aid toward Ukraine was to contain the war and not end the war. Whereas I was under the belief that we were really trying to end the war. Sure, we don't want it to expand, but the main goal is to end it. And if so, you have to have the military aid match that. And uh, and I think I do think these tanks will make uh, a substantial difference. There, there. That's debatable, but I believe it will. Well, look, I think tanks are critical. Look, when you look at the geography, mm-hmm. basically pushing east of the Dnieper River, which is more or less bisects the country, gets very flat, very exactly. tank territory, right? And so uh, you've got this horrible situation at the moment in Bakhmut, which is in the southeast, and Solodar, which basically human meat grinders. Neither side can punch through, and. Uh, what tanks are allowed to do is actually punch holes in the opposition line and then wrap yeah, it and get in behind them uh, with uh, you know, mobile infantry uh, uh, units. So, um, look, tanks are critical. Uh, you know, the Leopard 2 tank that the Germans are now finally sending is simpler to use um, than uh, the US Abrams tank. Uh, unfortunately, so basically, there's I think there's about 300 tanks floating right. around in Europe. No, actually, no. Oh, no sorry, right? I was going to say there are 321 okay. tanks that the Western states together will be sending to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Right, right, that's right. No, and, but uh, the important thing around that is that um, yeah, the Germans have allowed others to send them. So they're sending 14, but they're letting the Poles and, and other countries that have Leopard 2 tanks. But unfortunately, with the US tanks, the uh, the... Abrams class tanks are actually coming off the production line. Um, and so that's going to take some time. Now, the argument around that is that, then, you know, Ukraine's going to be trained on them, et cetera. But I mean, look, you know, I just, uh, I've got to query some of those decisions. But the other issue around the Abrams tanks, so they say it's very, it's very hungry on fuel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it makes supply chains more complicated. But again, um, Look, I I think that's a problem you can solve once you have them in the field. So, uh, you know, I think the faster the better is obviously my position. Now, um, we talk about Ukraine all the time. Obviously, we're coming up to the one year. I hate to use the term anniversary, but the one year marker of the war because it's certainly not an anniversary. It's a commiseration. But uh, I think, yeah, at this point, war remains in the balance, but Russia's lost. Not winning, can't go further. So it comes down to to what degree do we, the royal way in the West, want to enforce a loss on them and then help the Ukrainians expel them from their country, which I think is critical. So now to another critical issue, one that uh, you're far more expert than I am, but though I do follow along, Iran. Now, this is one we're watching closely throughout pretty much since September last year when the protests kicked off. Uh, what's the latest? Because, yeah, we've been reading about this awful reporting of key uh, activists being tortured, raped. Uh, there was a recent report of an opening f- of fire on protesters on a Friday, which is a kind of critical protest day. So maybe you can take us through where that's at at the moment and you know, how you see you know, whether or not the protesters are succeeding, I suppose. In well, so let's start with the fact that protests continue and that uh, at, even with these public executions, with reports of torture and rape, um, and which, by the way, I would just add the idea that that 
this regime would use rape to enforce women's morality is just highlights for you how criminal and absurd um, this regime is. But but uh, even with reports of that, a lot people have not. You know, they're not. They haven't been forced in their homes. They're still going out there and they're still um, actively protesting. And in certain areas, it ebbs and flows as to when it when it increases. But they're still out there. They're still protesting. Women are still removing their hijabs. And you see that at schools and you see it across the country in, in across the country, by the way, in different ethnic areas, in different by different socioeconomic classes. And so it's sustained. And the Iranian regime has come out here and there with sometimes for example they'll try and say they'll try and pretend that they are going to be somewhat responsive so for example a month or a month ago or so they said that they would be reviewing uh the mandatory hijab dress code then they said a few weeks ago that they would be releasing a thousand female prisoners and that's laughable when they they've detained a total of 19,000 people and have been actively torturing and killing them. And so I I you know this continues. The Iranian regime has pursued an indiscriminate a policy of indiscriminate violence. And where you have now where the rubber meets the road is how the international community is going to respond at this stage. When you have protesters who have clearly said we're not turning back and we're not afraid and we're going to continue beating this drum however we can it i find that the ball is a little bit in the in the court of the uh, of the of the world and and frankly they're being a little silent and i'm i'm talking about everybody but i really i have i really have um i'm i'm pretty upset with how the us government in particular has responded and uh i you, what should we be doing well let's well, what what should what would you like yeah. to say? Um, you know, not just from the U.S. government, but uh, I mean, the, everyone looks to the U.S. government. What couldn't? The you know, world the U.S. Do? government seems to have a short memory because I was at the White House when we when we lived the Arab Spring and when we were figuring out our policies and when it became untenable for the U.S. government to not call on leaders to step down or to it to not at least say that they believed a leader should step aside to allow for a democratic transition i handled syria uh for the first two years of the syria crisis from the white house so you know the most difficult of them all really and uh and even with that case where we knew we couldn't make the leader step down we faced enormous pressure to say that this gov the government was illegitimate, the president was illegitimate, and we believed he should step down. And, and what you have over and over again, uh, by the way, as recently as today, uh, a White House official had, a, had an interview on BBC where I was basically screaming at the radio because I was so angry with everything I was hearing. He, the, it, this was with Rob Malley, who's a special envoy for Iran, and he repeated that the policy toward the protesters is separate than the policy toward the nuclear deal and basically implied that if the door were to be opened to make a nuclear deal then they would walk in, they would walk through that door and i find that shocking because i don't see after handling a country like Syria and watching our policy evolve during the Arab Spring, I really don't see, number one, first of all, I think the nuclear deal is never gonna happen. I think that's a joke. And uh, and and that's all the more obvious now when you saw the sanctions demands Iran made uh, over the last year that the, that the Biden administration was not willing to cede on anyway. You have, uh, Russia is not going to participate in any kind of talks. So the the ground is not ripe anyway for these nuclear talks so the fact that they're still hanging on this to me is the wrong message because you're telling the protesters well we'd be able to, we we would be willing to to kind of sell you down the river if if we could do a nuclear deal and you're communicating to the regime that they still have something there that makes them legitimate that makes them worthy to deal with and so i believe and this is my opinion that the United States and the European countries and and others, Australia, all I mean, everybody in the in the in who have a voice, who have an ability to have any sway to isolate Iran further should come out and say that there's not going to be a nuclear deal with this regime. This regime cannot be engaged with. So once you, yeah, because once you take the nuclear deal off the table, because everyone's committed to this nuclear deal that was struck in the Obama era, that the Trump administration then 
uh, I guess, uh, rescinded. And then subsequently, you know, I, I imagine given Biden was the vice president, so Obama still remains sort of intellectually committed to the idea. But as you're saying, the events have moved beyond, uh, I suppose, now where where that's at. So it's an interesting take. Now, still in Iran, there was a strike uh, on a drone facility there. And so a couple of days ago, huge explosion. Now, Iranian drones have been in the news uh, for the, all the wrong reasons in that they've been supplying these so-called suicide drones to Russia. And, you know, I was in Ukraine where these things were landing and they got this horrific uh, whistling sound or a screaming sound, as they call it, uh, as they hit into the cities. And so um, out of nowhere, a drone factory seemingly exposed in uh, Iran. Now, that's been attributed to Israel that Israel is not confirmed nor denied that they did it other than to say that... Uh, they reserve the right to, um, you know, destroy uh, viable military targets um, inside of uh, of Iran if they need to. So, what's your take on that? Because it's a very interesting thing, kind of underreported, but I think a, a real interesting move uh, by the potentially the Israelis or whomever did it, given the intersection here between what's happening with the regime and also with the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, I'm, you know, I, I was, I thought it was funny. I almost laughed when I saw this uh, headline from the Wall Street Journal about the, the, the strike on this Iranian military facility because we used to deal with this when I was in the government all the time and Israel would never confirm or deny. And to be honest with you, it was our policy ourselves not to comment or speculate, even though we all knew who did it. And that changed under President Trump. I thought that was very odd that they would come out and say, oh yeah, Israel did this. Um, this was a key feature of Netanyahu's strategy toward Iran and policies toward Iran when he was prime minister the first time. So since at least 2009, this has been a very regular practice of theirs. And now this this strike, though, is the first that we're seeing since he's become prime minister again. They continued uh, right. under Naftali Bennett. So this again, this has been a regular policy of theirs. And so I don't I don't want to put too much emphasis on the fact that they did this, it's not that surprising. What's interesting about it is that it comes at a time when, as we just talked about the nuclear deal, really not seeming like a realistic goal for this year, where and yet Iran inching closer and closer to having enough enriched uranium to create a nuclear weapon, where Israel, for sure, and the United States and Europe and everybody are trying to figure out how how should they address the threats posed by Iran, given that a nuclear deal is very unlikely and that it continues to inch closer to this nuclear weapon? And so I also, as a result, you've had a lot of heightened U.S. engagement. The CIA director, Bill Burns, went to Israel last week before this strike took place. And now you have Secretary of State Tony Blinken going. And I just found it interesting that this strike happened between the visits because the U.S. as a rule uh, is they don't want anything that could risk escalation, violent escalation, military escalation between Iran and Israel because the United States has a defense pact with Israel. And so as a rule, the U.S. doesn't push for this kind of policy. We don't tend to like the strikes. Um, and, and that's why I found it interesting. Bill Burns was there clearly to say, you know, we need to figure out, we need to align our policies and coordinate on them. And I will say for the years that I worked in government, for the 12 years I worked in the government, the U.S. can only place so much pressure on Israel. At the end of the day, it will do what it wants. Well, that's right. And Israel has made it very clear that it will, particularly, you know, they have their very strong independent military capability. Um, and they're quite a strong uh, defense force and defense industry. So uh, Israel is very forward-leaning um, to use the parlance of foreign affairs in, term, in, in terms of its uh, you know, first strike approach to you know, its uh, you know, regimes it considers to be threatening. Now, it's worth pointing out that Iran does not acknowledge the right of Israel to exist. Uh, so parking, um, uh, whether or not they could ever have peace is probably, you know, that, that is, a, you know, the, so I guess the kind of, the central problem um, when you're dealing with um, Israel and Iran and all the other parties in the Middle East. A complicated area that you know far better than I, Hagar. Uh, but now, turning to areas that I know a little better. China. Uh, so a lot, a lot going on, actually. Um, going into the end of last year, 
COVID zero, you know, sort of out of nowhere, abandoned, completely abandoned. And, you know, then there was this unbelievable situation where there was only eight recorded deaths, despite the fact we were hearing that, um, uh, you know, that uh, crematoriums are full, that uh, there are shortages of coffins uh, in rural and regional parts of uh, China. But uh, now that's subsequently been upwardly revised, there are, you know, 60,000 odd uh, reported deaths. But look, back of the envelope numbers, if the 80% of the population of 1.3 billion people are, are being, uh, you know, infected, then in, in a poorly vaccinated population, the death rate you know, horrifically could be in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Definitely. If you, on, on a, if you looked at the Omicron uh, subvariant uh, you know, mortality rate, you probably get to 3.3 million. I've seen some estimates, but uh, the other thing that's come out also uh, is China's population is now falling. Uh, now, other people say that their population has actually been falling for longer. So, a lot of people are skeptical that it's 1.3 billion. That could actually be lower than that, perhaps lower than 1.2. But of course, this is a Two-factor problem. One, it's a factor of um, of uh, it's one China policy. Sorry, one child policy coming uh, uh, into fruition over many, many years. But also, just frankly, that you read this that you know, people aren't wanting to have kids because, unsurprisingly, it's expensive to do it. And China actually, the cost of raising a child is actually much even even more expensive, believe it, than uh, many advanced uh, economies. So. China at the moment is in a really sort of tricky spot. And then they roll up, and this is the bit that I kind of wanted to get your take on. They roll up to Davos and, uh, you know, their representative there says, hey, um, forget about the last couple of years of, or maybe the last half decade of wolf warrior diplomacy and China saying that uh, he was going to, you know, have this China 2025 plan and we're going to nationalise every industry and arrest billionaires like uh, Jack Ma. China's open for business and everything's great again. What do you make of that? Firstly, do you believe it? And secondly, do you think it is a function of some of the things I just talked about, i.e. their economy is in a bit of trouble with their labour shortages, COVID, et cetera, they've got a property sector problem, growth's low, have they realised that they've uh, wrecked their own economy to some degree? Mm, What do you think? So the first... I went on a bit of a rant, but, uh, you know... Well, you you have have a particular... You've always had a particular focus on on uh, China. So I actually think your insight is always really valuable on China. The um, I so first to answer your first question about whether I believe what the Chinese are saying at Davos and publicly. Uh, yeah, no, I actually don't. I don't typically believe most of what they say as a rule, um, <laughs> especially because we all know their goal is we know there are just some realities on the ground that aren't going to add up. And I, I thought that, by the way, since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, and I don't believe their numbers now. They don't make sense. Uh, certainly when you know that that I believe it's 60 percent of their elderly are vaccinated and we know we've seen our vaccine as well, right? With the low exactly, exactly. Vaccine. Which even the WHO has come out and said that that vaccine in particular requires three shots to be fully effective. And we're just talking about three initial shots, right? The rest of the world are already on boosters of fourth and fifth boosters at this point. So, well, most of the world, I guess, unfortunately there are pockets that haven't been, but anyway. And um, and so when you're facing that kind of situation, you're talking, we're talking COVID the way it was in 2020. If you have 40% of elderly who aren't vaccinated at all and 60% who have two shots, from a a quite weak vaccine to put it to put it strongly um then the the number of the deaths have to be higher the hospital uh the hospitals being overrun have to be a bigger issue this way that they ripped the band-aid off to allow to say you know what you don't want covid lockdown measures fine here's here have at it is just criminal really it's not what governments it's the opposite of what governments are supposed to do for their people and um and it's a shame but i i at the same time, there are too many signs there that the moves they have taken have been in desperation for their economy. First is ripping mm-hmm. the Band-Aid off this way 
And the fact that you've had all these businesses and companies leave, uh, you have. I saw. I saw a report saying that a thousand companies have and businesses have left China. So you're talking about a drain of of expertise, a drain of foreign investment, a drain of jobs, a drain of expertise, all these um, of of technical assistance. I mean, whatever it might be, that's a huge drain. Um, you have the fact that their economy for all these lockdowns has also halted the work of numerous plants and factories and and they they can't if they derive all their power from their economy and they really do derive the majority of their power from the from their economy then they need to do whatever they can to put their economy back on track and it's not going fast enough with the measures they've taken so far and i that's that's why i thought when i heard the announcement about the children and I, and I and we should add then that announcement so I think it was about a year ago or so they announced that uh, and and don't quote me on the timing but it was sometime a year ago or two where China announced instead of one child people could have two and it made no difference and so they said okay it's yeah. fine people can have three and by the way as a mother of three i do not view that as you know i really tipped things over the edge when i had the third okay that is you telling me oh you didn't have two so now you you can have three as an incentive that's not an incentive <laughs> love my third but it is hard work and um so they said that and now in this province in particular they've said you know what you can have as many as you want and i just frankly don't understand their calculation that is not what's going to incentivize people to to hit the sack and make babies that's not it it's as you said it's the quality of life and the the cost of living and i'm not sure why they're not squaring that circle frankly but i do believe all these measures reflect that they are genuinely concerned about their economy and that it is not going to move as fast as they want to and so they're pursuing this pr campaign but i don't think it, i think it's i think i don't think most people believe it well, if you go back, actually, just sort of, you, funny you mentioned three children. I, of course, have none, uh, but uh, so I, I can't uh, empathise or I can sympathise. But it just reminded me of a there was a, a former Australian uh, treasurer about twenty years ago uh, in the Howard government, Peter Costello. He uh, introduced a policy called the baby bonus, which was essentially a cash payment family child. His term at the time, because there was this big thing around intergenerational uh aging and how we're going to support an aging population we still kind of have that problem here but he said to have one for mum one for dad and one for the country so that was his policy so that was uh, so you've done that uh okay you've uh, you've you've just, done your done bit, my but, duty uh, no it's an interesting problem interesting problem because one of the you know this is yeah that was a big crackdown on um on these companies that uh, were uh, selling tutoring in the in China, and the, the reason the crackdown happened was because there was a view that uh, they were extorting people and charging too much to raise children and get them the educational standard. But actually, all that's done is created a black market for it, and the problem is actually worse than ever. So, uh, the problem with autocracies, mm -hmm. right? Now you get yourself in a cul-de-sac and bad policies, and now they've got a problem. But uh, now turning closer to your home. US Everything politics. Everything is fine here. Right. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's normal. Situation normal. Uh, talk about former President Trump. You know, one of his biggest problems is his uh, refusal to hand over uh, top secret files that he had uh, kept in Mar-a-Lago in poor security. That he was asked for them, he did not give them back. So he's under potential cloud of obstruction of justice and also uh, breaching of uh, security protocols. Now, there's a special prosecutor in place. Then the next thing we hear is that Joe Biden, he has had uh, files found from when he was vice president, not, and they've had multiple occasions that they've had to come forward and say, we found another cache of these files. Now that was self-reporting this, but that's three times that that's happened. Uh, and then, of course, now you've got uh, former vice president, Mike Pence, who was vice president to uh, Biden now, sorry to to Trump. Sorry, uh, Biden. Uh, so, what do you make of this? Because, in many ways, you look at it now. Trump's entitled to the presumption of innocence, but basically, he's going to get to rights there on that. But this has completely muddied the waters politically. At least they're not like for like comparisons, but on a what aboutist argument. Look, you know, and in highly polarized U.S. politics, it seems now that. 
any attempts to hold Trump to account are going to be much more difficult. Um, what, what's your take? I love this issue. I'm going to try not to go too long on this issue because there's so much <laughs> here that I could say and so many jokes, by the way, that I could make. Um, let's start. Let's let's hone in on on Biden in particular. Um, let's first start with the fact that this was a PR disaster. The oh, it, it, can I just say, I always want to jump in here and I'm, then I'm going to let you go because I can't believe, like on a political kind of, uh, you know, hygiene basis, that no one in the president's team said, you know what, boss has been in the job for, yeah, he's been in US politics since he was 29. The man's now nearly 80. Uh, and, um, you know, should we have a look around? He's vice president for eight years. Should we just do a sweep? <laughs> it's political malpractice. Anyway, continue. And There's so, so much wrong with with all of this. And, and we'll start with the fact, right, that's a good one as it is. I didn't understand as a national security person, as someone who worked in the U.S. government for 12 years, and worked with top secret material and had to and was trained in handling it properly. But by the way, you can't have a clearance unless you're trained in handling classified material properly. And they train. What does that look like? What explain what that looks like? Actually, how you're trained or how to handle it properly. No, well, what, what, what is handling? Yeah, look so like so yeah. first of all, um, you are you can't have you can't carry classified material out in public unless it is. Uh, and depending on its level, it needs to be in an envelope of certain kind. It has to have a cover sheet. It has to be, if you're taking it outside a building, it needs to be in a lock bag that has a key. The key has to be somewhere where nobody can steal it from you. Um, you can't go somewhere public with that lock bag. Like you can't stop and get a coffee if you're carrying it. You need to go directly to the US agency where you have said meeting. You need to make sure that whatever documents you traveled with, you are returning with. And then when you return to your office with those documents and that's if you traveled with them but even if you didn't if you had to print them out for a meeting or for because you're doing research and you need it in front of you for some reason before you leave that day or even if you leave your office if if you're physically not there then those materials need to be put in a burn bag uh and burned they need to be shredded um or they need to be stored in a safe the only type of facility that can have classified documents out in in, I don't want to say public, but out on your desk, for example, is what's called a secure compartmented in intelligence facility. So, in, you know, any kind of intelligence building, intelligence offices that are, that those have 24-hour watch guards. They are sweeped constantly. You can't bring a phone in there, right? So it doesn't mean you can't have classified material outside of those, but you are trained ad nauseum. When I say ad nauseum, I mean maybe three, four times a year you get training. Some of them are in person. Some of them are uh, virtual, digital. If you don't complete them, then your security clearance will be put on hold. They take it very seriously. So we were, as staffers, scared shitless. We would never <laughs> dare. I mean, unless you had a, a malicious intent, you really would not right. dare you know, leave classified material out on your desk or print it and leave it in the printer. And your colleagues would remind you and say, like, let's say you you forgot a piece of paper on your desk. They would say, oh, hey, by the way, you know, don't forget to, to shred that. Don't forget to put that in a safe. And that's how you were trained. And this... So what would happen to you if you had just had, uh, you know, 30 files downstairs in the garage? So, and this is, this, I want to highlight how crazy it is, the idea that you would have them at right. home. If you leave them out on your desk, that's a pretty minor infraction. But if you do that more than once, you are getting your security, your security clearance will be revoked, maybe just temporarily, and you will be trained. And who knows when you're going to get your clearance back. But if you don't have a security clearance, there's not a lot you can do in national security. So you're, you're kind of, you become useless in your job. So that's the first. If you have it at home, forget about it. You're going to be escorted out of the building. They're going to do an investigation. They're going to put not just your clearance on hold, but you will be put on leave to, to investigate and see why those materials were at home. Now, intent plays a very large role here. Do I think that Biden himself took these materials for any purpose, whether it was to share them, to use them in writing a book, anything like this? No, I don't. I think that it was just pure negligence. I'm even wondering if on January 20th, when President Obama's tenure was up, if, if it's like if he didn't pack and he just shoved a bunch of 
materials in a box or if his if his staffers did i don't you know i i, I don't really understand it because there's no u.s government job i left where i took paper with me uh, if I took any paper, it would have been a print, a list of contacts that I had collected, but never would I have taken actual information. That's not mine to have. Um, and like I said, we were scared shitless into do like, we would never do something like that. So just logistically how this happened uh, is hard for me to understand, especially given the training, the oversight, the monitoring of it all. Um, that said, they found it in November. That's when it started. And given everything that happened with Trump, where Again, I, I can't speak or speculate on the intent with Trump, but with Trump, the way that they blocked the investigations and refused to allow the FBI and the Department of Justice to retrieve those documents, that was that was really bad. Biden didn't do that, right? So the lawyers, they found these documents, they said we want to cooperate, but they really did play a dirty PR game where they thought they could do this under the radar without anybody noticing. And that's just naive and dumb. And especially in an atmosphere post-Trump, I don't see why they wouldn't have come forth and say, like right from the beginning, and say, we found these, we're cooperating, we're gonna do a sweep, and, and go from there. And that's why I think Vice President Pence really played the PR game well. He learned from the previous dudes and said, you know, when, he, when they found uh, documents at his, I believe it was his home, I can't remember, uh, he came out right away, and right immediately, and said, I'm cooperating, and the, this was, you know, by accident, and so on, and, and so, but I, I don't know why this is a thing. That's what I'm trying to highlight here is I just don't understand why this is a pattern of behavior. I can't imagine how the rest of the world, I mean, you tell me as a, as a country that is part of the five eyes, does it make you look at the United States like you can't trust that they know how to handle this type of material anymore? Uh, uh, look, I mean, I, look, I, I think it's kind of, I think what's interesting is everything you described there is that staffers tend to take it more seriously than the principal. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel the, the boss, the president, the vice president, I think you go, well, you know, you're sort of kind of, I'm in charge here, so maybe the rules apply to everybody else except me to some degree, right? So I don't know if there's an element of that. I just can't help but look at the politics of it and just go, what an absolute shambles. Looks like um, a circus. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, yeah. And but then also that, you know, you couldn't, okay, so it happened once, but the, the, for there to be two or and, and a third uh, revelation is enormously damaging and and frankly um, I think now you know they would have done it anyway but the House Republicans are now in a position where they can with some justification say well we're going to have to investigate uh, the President um, his handling of documents hey uh, where are these documents where did Hunter Biden ever go there uh, you know I mean like these are questions now that they can ask with a straight face uh, whereas before they think you know they would have been you know kind of reaching in terms of uh, you know, the, the way that they'd be trying to link conspiracy theories to the president. So I think, um, you know, in terms of whether or not it, it erodes confidence, I think what it does is it just unfortunately puts a pretty serious issue, which what Trump has done uh, in terms of what would appear to be, we don't know all the details, but what would appear to be holding nuclear secrets in a golf club. Um, it, it descends that serious issue into partisan politics and well they all do it they're all hopeless and when things descend into that territory it's hard to get ordinary people to care about it so um you know it's, it's a concern and I, I you know <laughs> um you know as a five eyes country i'm sure australia is concerned but i wonder how the u.s would respond if i don't know the nuclear submarine codes or secrets that we are signing ourselves onto as part of the AUKUS agreement were just laying around somewhere i mean you know probably mm -hmm. Uh, <laughs> it would be very poorly seen, in right? someone so, else's you know, locked garage right uh, you mentioned the locked garage and i just have to add because i can't let this slide before we move on which is that when biden came out and said you know he didn't say don't worry but something along those lines of like hey these were these were in a locked garage next to my corvette yeah. and it's it's locked because that's right. where i keep my corvette, corvette and i'm I'm sorry. I, don't, I don't know why he mentioned the Corvette. I was Me like, neither. <laughs> I, I mean, deep down, I was shaking my head, but I also was, my first thought, and I guess I hadn't followed his, that he was a car guy. I thought he was just like a climate guy. But when he said that, I was like, you have a Corvette? You, 
You don't know no, how to ride a no. bike. What do you mean you have a Corvette? <laughs> we, I don't know that. Well, it kind of goes with his persona, right? Like this, it's with the aviator glasses and, you know, the kind of the joke. Cool. Oh, yes. It's like a working class joke over the Corvette, I guess. But uh, it was look, a bad talking point. The messaging, I think we could, <laughs> I think we could agree. It's been an absolute disaster. <laughs> now, we could talk about this all day, uh, but, uh, you know, like, utterly baffling. Now, switching to things that are utterly baffling around the world. John Dory, what's the story? What do you got for us yeah, this week? My story is about a guy you may have not heard of, in which case you should be grateful, but I got to share it because it's crazy. A congressman here named George Santos. He's a new uh, congressman, freshman oh, oh, oh. congressman, a Republican Man. from a district in New York, just outside New York City, called Nassau, Nassau County. And right after he was elected, uh, so after he won, and he's headed to Washington, D.C., we, we find story after story that, that where we discover that he, he's a pathological liar. He had lied about everything, lied about his name, lied about his resume, lied about where he had worked in finance for however many years. He said he worked at Goldman Sachs, for example. There was no record of it. He said his that he lost his mother in the September 11 terrorist attacks. Never happened. He said that he had lost uh, family members of his in the Holocaust and claimed that they had a completely different last name, but that along the way somehow it was changed to Santos. Not somehow, I mean, that happens, but, but apparently none of that actually happened. He has no Jewish background. Um, so he lied about that as well, his Jewish heritage, which is non-existent. Um, lied about everything. No, no, what he said was Jewish. Oh, right. He described himself as Jewish. <laughs> and so, just like, like, it's easier to explain, but basically saying, well, no, no, I'm sympathetic to Jewish people, therefore I am Jewish, Jew adjacent, then I'm yes, Jewish. Yes, exactly. Anyway, an extraordinary explanation. It doesn't end. I mean, yeah. and now once that came out, then of course, more lies were found because of past boyfriends of his and roommates and so on who've come out to share these stories. So, for example, we've learned of uh, fraudulent checks that he uh, tried to pay with in Brazil. And now that Brazil knows where he is, the Brazilian authorities, they're going, they've reopened an investigation against him. Uh, Bra uh, Brazilian acquaintances of his said that he was dressed in, um, in drag in Brazil and that he had this alter ego or another name called Kitara and he claims no way that this is him and if you look at the photos side by side it is absolutely him and 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 it's a Looks like it, it is. It's him yeah. in a wig, and 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 yeah. and I. By the way, I right. hate as somebody very, who feels very strongly uh, about pro LGBTQ rights. I hate that he's denying this. Um, but anyway, so this it's it's a farce, and so he's going around lying. It's wild. Yes. I mean, a farce is just barely a word for it. It's just <laughs> one of those one of those things that you just listed is politically disqualified for yeah. anybody, right? And it's extraordinary that he got elected mm -hmm. and that this was not picked up in uh you know internal due diligence by the republican yep. party through the primary or through the election like, yes the sort of aesthetic value here that it's just it's, it's yes i would agree right? the press and there's been a lot about this here that the press a lot of reporters say that they really didn't do their job well and that they were relying lazily on the opposition research from the from the Democrats, and that that didn't wasn't thorough enough, and that they didn't do their job in actually trying to verify did he in fact work at Goldman Sachs? Did were these things actually accurate? So it all came out after. But here's the 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 cherry on the on the Sunday. I think I got that expression right. The cherry on the icing. The, here's the cherry. Okay, <laughs> the cherry on top, cherry on top is that the Republicans right. are not kicking him out of Congress with all right. this. Right. It's such a it's such a sham and such a farce. But they they are so desperate to hang on to power. They're so desperate to have that one vote and make sure that that vote is Republican, that they're not doing anything to move him out. And so it's actually uh, the latest news I saw is that his own district wants him out and they are looking to see how they can push him out. So we'll see if that happens. It's absurd. Truth of the matter is that uh, it, it, that, look, they, they'll get their chance to kick him out in two years, but it's hard to see. Yeah, as I understand, the only people that have ever been expelled, and it's a two-third majority of Congress mm -hmm. required, uh, that they have been convicted of crimes, not um, uh, not uh, alleged to have 
you know, done something fraudulent. And so basically the problem, of course, you know, you'd be cynical about it. If you're going to keep people out for lying about their resume, then uh, you might have to kick out a few more. But look, going back to what we're talking about, Kevin McCarthy, he's got his reasons, which is he's a very skinny majority. And believe it or not, uh, Santos is actually on committees. Oh. So for, well, forget about kicking him out. He's been appointed to committees. So it gets worse. I mean, it's just sort of... Like, I was watching this thing on Volley. It's like, okay, he didn't work at Goldman Sachs or a Ward case. He's, you know, he's uh, bullshitted his CV. And, and so, but then, like, just the way that it's ended up that he has formerly a life as a Brazilian uh, drag, you know, performer. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, you can't and, make this uh, up. Yeah. <laughs> no, you really can't, actually. If you pitch that as uh, a show, you're like, look, man, you got to get these things somewhere close to, you know, uh, believable. The audience is not going to go with it. Now, mine, uh, more serious than this, but involving people that are also uh, known liars. So uh, Boris Johnson, former British Prime Minister, fan, sorry, a favourite of oh, yours. Yeah. You're a huge fan. Well, to impersonate him. Favourite person to impersonate him. Now... He says that Vladimir Putin, when he was prime minister and before the war, so you know, roughly a year ago, as they were negotiating and trying to stop uh, Putin from invading Ukraine, he said that Putin said to him that uh, you know if he basically kept going with this, that uh, you know I can kill you very easily with a missile strike within seconds. Uh, now, Putin, Putin's spokesperson has said that's not just untrue; it's a flat lie, and had a different explanation. Essentially, that he said that. Uh, missile strikes into Ukraine would take seconds. Now, my thing about this is I sort of look at the two of them and go, I don't, you know, Putin, we know, is a liar. His entire MO is lying. But, you know, Johnson's not exactly got a close relationship with the truth. So uh, people would have been listening in. So there might be a readout somewhere that exists. I, 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 I kind of don't know because I know that Johnson is famous for frankly bullshitting and uh yeah in his terms when he was done for um when he was at the daily telegraph as the brussels correspondent he would make things up uh, about what was happening in brussels about the eu and say oh they're uh they're currently debating the size of what uh, condoms should be and just sort of like would sort of report sort of mistruths and he uh was caught out um uh, misquoting someone and he described it as sandpapering the truth. So I don't know whether or not Boris is sandpapering the truth here, but I look at that thing, I'm just uh, dubious that that happened. And, and, you know, I hate to sign a burden on this, but I just, I don't know, I just find it hard to believe. So well, time will tell, I suppose, someone will reveal it. Uh, but of course we don't know uh, what Putin said to uh, Trump back in Helsinki, so maybe we'll never know. So anyway, as ever, Hagar, we've run way <laughs> over time, but uh, great chat. But it's been a great chat. We had a, a month's worth of foreign policy to catch up on because we had a break over Christmas, et cetera. So there's a lot to talk about, but great to be with you. And uh, thank you so much. Likewise, for always. It's so great to be here, Misha. Thanks for having me. And if you're not already, make sure you're subscribing to Hagar's amazing show, uh, uh, Oh My World, available on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, if you are uh, liking to give your data to the CCP if you're on there. Uh, so... Make sure you follow along because I'm sure look, there's always something happening in the world. You lose Boris Johnson, but you get George Santos. So, you know, there's always, it's a gift that keeps on giving foreign policy. But anyway, till next time, bye for now. Bye. G'day, Diplomates fans. I uh, hope you enjoyed that show as much as I did. It was a little longer than we usually do with the garbage. There's just literally so much to cover. And uh, it was a, a lot of fun recording. So big thanks to the Gar. Make sure you are checking out the show, the Oh My World show. You can see that in the show notes or you can easily Google it. Uh, you can find it very easily. She's a hilarious and very well-informed woman. Now, question. Question is from Jim. Jim's asked me, what's got you most worried in 2023? <laughs> I, I kind of laughed when I saw this. Um, and, uh, you know, there's so many things, obviously, to worry about. And clearly, that's why we have this show and that's what I was talking about. But actually... The thing that worries me quite a bit, actually, is, and it's a little left field, but is the state of the United Kingdom. Um, it's a critical global democracy. Obviously, it remains, you know, part of Australia's constitution. We are a constitutional monarchy, so we remain in the Commonwealth. Um, but more generally, just the UK is just in a bad way. Uh, Sunak, the new PM, is kind of struggling. Um, there's been a big fight now with the Scots over a bill relating to uh, transgender rights. 
So I think once again, you're going to start seeing a new push on for Scottish independence. You know, the economy's in the toilet, cost of living has fallen fast, sorry, cost of living is rising, the standard of living has fallen faster than the 1950s. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a stat that came out later last year basically saying that an average family in the UK now has a similar standard of living to Slovakia and will soon be joining Poland. So it's bad, right? It's in a bad way. The NHS, there's 7 million people waiting. You've got rolling strikes. It's just not good. And the United Kingdom, um, it's obviously not uh, the British Empire anymore dominating the seas, but it's a critical democracy. It's the world's sixth biggest economy. And having it on its butt like this is very bad for the global democratic project and frankly um, undermines not just efforts like helping Ukraine and the weapons that uh, you know, the UK have been sending, but it, it really discredits the democratic project overall saying, hey, become a democracy and things get better. Well, if they come up the UK, it's not exactly the best sell. So come on UK, be better. Right, anyway, thanks so much for that question, Jim. Uh, until next time, bye for now. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.